my name is Matilda. I go by Matildork on Twitter. With, um, I'm a I'm a poet. I do poet stuff. I'm an undergrad in college, and I'm just uh, yeah. I wrote this paper and I made it into a video, and it's about uh, anti-racist pedagogy and difficult poetry and the kind of intersection between those. Because uh, I think there's a there's a cool argument. Uh, that kind of links the two together, which I, I hope came across in the video. I know it like doesn't get uh, doesn't come to it until like an hour in, which is not ideal. But I mean, hey, yeah. I think a lot of people would be like, "Who's going to watch an hour long long video about poetry?" But then like, Sargon of a Cat has like six hour videos <laughs> of like question marks. I I mean I I think my influences in terms of making videos on YouTube come from that kind of like left tube what what's often called bread tube like very put together polished video of like essentially leftist propaganda which is a lot of fun uh youtubers like contrapoints and like philosophy tube and them or like h bomber guy i never found the uh like appeal of people just kind of talking about the books they liked i was always big into like video essays and like someone combining the ideas and theories of a bunch of people and then stringing it together and so like bringing those two together there there aren't really a lot of channels that i've come across at least that do literature video essays it's all like film theory it's all um like because then you get to use visuals so it's a lot more visually stimulating uh and so doing the essentially that but with literature and at least having some sort of presence i i, I have been doing uh, different kinds of YouTube videos for a few years. I was running uh, a channel with my ex-girlfriend where we talked about language learning. I'm big into foreign languages. And so uh, we ran this channel that's actually has like over freaking, I don't know how many subscribers, like over 10,000 at this point. Uh, but I left that because I wanted to do something more uh, poetry based and with literature. And I, I wasn't getting to do that over there. I'd like talk about it a bit with like, you know, uh, German's one of the other languages I speak. And so I talk about Rilke and stuff, but I couldn't really dive into it as much as I wanted to. And so coming over here, I've, uh, or to my own channel, I've been able to like, or at least I'm trying to carve out a little space for it. I mean, there isn't too much of an audience, but I don't care as much because I'm, I'm just doing what I like. Yeah. And I feel, but I feel like on the other hand that like, even though there isn't an existing audience, I do feel like there's an opportunity to build one. And there's, we've seen like that happen with, as you said, like left tube and bread tube that. Absolutely. I mean, even with like the growth of paint bucket recently. Yeah, for sure. I really do think there's an opportunity and people genuinely like watching video essays on YouTube. I, I do. I watch, um, you know, whether it's H bomber guy or Sean and Jen, or I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Philosophy tube, like you mentioned, there's definitely a space for that kind of stuff. And it, to see someone like doing it and also like doing it well and doing it well in the style that that's developed yeah and i'd i'd love to develop it further i mean this uh this essay more or less has just been like all i've thrown myself at this summer and so to i've kind of it came to the point where i had reread the essay so many times and then edited the video through and i was like i could make this a lot prettier but i was like uh, it's, it's just going up. We're, we're good now. Yeah, at some point you just got to do that. I hit that point with editing these podcast episodes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Podcast episodes are as good as I can make them in 30 minutes in Audacity. Yeah. 
but you know, it's it's also cool to have like you know well produced content, and I think you're trying to do that, that which is which is interesting. And like you know, in the in the course of listening to the your YouTube video, like it was very well researched, and you cited a lot of sources, and I think you cited a lot of interesting things that people and in, like interested in left poetry would be would want to talk about like and sorry so to bring it back to what we were started talking about you know you start off by talking about uh, the rise of languages in the nation state and yes. i think that's like an important thing to talk about yeah no what do you say no i mean that that topic really interests me the uh the, the link between uh speech and writing is one that uh the kind of the language poets really turned me on to um like Robert Grenier's fa famous uh, I Hate Speech uh, essay, that line gets repeated by Ron Silliman in a ton of poems. Um, I believe Hoginian, I, I don't know if Hoginian actually touches on it as much, but like all of the language poets kind of have their flirting with uh, the frustration between speech and writing. And uh, Ron Silliman's collection of essays uh, in the new sentence uh, is kind of where all this started for me uh, because he, or is it that? I'm actually not sure if it is that. But either way, I've been thinking of the the link between, they, they got me thinking of the link between um, how when uh, writing first, in, in any society, when writing begins to develop, it is always first based off of speech and it is individually uh, created based on uh, a person's idiolect. So like, if you look at like early English poetry, say like, uh, I don't even know, I don't read early English poetry that much, but like Spencer or like uh, anyone, they all write, or even, no, Shakespeare's a little late, but like they all kind of will write words differently. They have, you know, vowels don't function the same way. Um, I mean, th their entire orthographies are totally individualized. And that's because there's no regulating body uh, like the MLA, like the OED or uh, the French Academy to um, kind of decide these rules. There's, there's only natural grammar at this point. There's no codified grammar. And then as, uh, as nations kind of accumulate and as languages become these kind of politicized forces, um, there, there is a, a rise in the policing of languages and it's, it's scary and uh, weird because you get to a point where we're at now we're like we're so the the ideology of language is like so entrenched in what we do and we want to get out of it but like it's it's almost like too late which sucks yeah and just real quick could you maybe uh, say what an idiolect is i just feel like that no, yeah, an idiolect is uh, the uh, essentially an individual person's own language habits, and essentially the entire language uh, patterns and habits of an individual. And uh, when you get big into like Marxist and um, Marxist critiques of language, you kind of come all the way to the point of like, okay, every individual speaks their own language. Everybody speaks individual idiolects, and these kind of form broad communities of mutual intelligibility and understanding with uh, their neighboring idiolects, and that's how we can communicate with one another. And um, uh, it gets it gets very interesting. And that's, that's a concept I've had a hard time selling people on, even though it's, like, linguistically proven. Like, I, I tried explaining to my parents, like, you know, oh, you know, we all speak different languages, and they're like, no, we speak English. And I'm like... Uh, I'm like okay, and then and then I try to get 
bring uh, class and politics into it and they blatantly out themselves as racist because I'm like, okay, so someone speaking, you know, African-American vernacular English, I'm like, how do you view that language? And they're like, oh, that's not the same English as ours. And I'm like, oh, well, I mean, you're not wrong. And I'm like, because it is another language entirely, but uh, how does how do you view the language? And they're like, you know, oh, sloppy. And I'm like, ah. Yeah, I, yeah, I do. I do feel like too that with Idiolex, what's interesting about it, like with respect to poetry, is like one of the most interesting things. Reading like not just like one of a poet's book books, but reading their entire sort of career arc, you can kind of see them develop yeah. their own language, and I think that's one of the reasons I was drawn to it when you mentioned it. Oh, absolutely! Like that's kind of the case with David Melnick, who uh, hardly likes to write in uh, English sentences. His his first book, I think, uh, Pacoet, is uh, essentially the 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 quote unquote made up language he and his brother or a friend made when they were kids, um, and there are all these neologisms or like made up words that um, that essentially don't have meaning, but nonetheless still have um, like not nonetheless still inform uh, a meaningful experience when you read them because of the like. Uh, astonishment in trying to figure them out yeah i think what's like so like that kind of practice that he's doing i think is really interesting when you contrast it with so like i think poetry often gets thought of as sort of a timeless thing and i think a lot of that now is connected with sort of the i guess the i think as you say in the video the idea of language having sort of one form one timeless form and i feel like that's connected with the timelessness that poetry tries to present itself as now. The the timelessness of the poem and the timelessness that is attempted to be enforced on language is an interesting dichotomy. The uh, Ron Silliman has this, just to like recap it for listeners, Ron Silliman has this theory that um, because time divides the poem, uh, there is never a full whole. Poetry can only be experienced as every... Uh, detail of it is kind of uh, uh, processed. So, you know, only through its parts, it's kind of um, gestalt in that sense. But um, the the enforcement of standardized languages is uh, anachronistic in the sense that it is just ahistorical and tries to prevent further language evolution. And it's this really weird uh, conservatism that um, attempts to kind of halt a language at its uh, historical development. And uh, I think poetry is a wonderful force that always pushes the, the, this. And I mean, that's why I enjoy the poetry of like Peter Inman, because he just goes around language or like uh, Diane Glancy, the people who I looked at in the video. Yeah, and I think there's an issue. You also brought in um, Roland Barthes and the pleasure of the text. And I, I like the idea yeah. of having readers, you know, readers make meaning, are the ones making the meaning. And I think you, that's like Absolutely. something I think about more and more, too, is the importance of criticism for poetry and the way in which that in, in and of itself is a very, you know, creative and almost poetic act. Absolutely. I mean, uh, one of the most beautiful uh, critics or like one of the most beautiful uh, works of criticism that I think I've read would be Susan Howe's My Emily Dickinson, or even her The Midnight. They're both like, 
essentially document documentation of her going through archives and just the experience of her uncovering uh, works and like so much of my Emily Dickinson isn't even about Emily Dickinson and it's it's really funny in that sense but like you know uh, I mean Roland Barthes has been really crucial to my like the development of this poetics because it it, it is a heightened uh, it's an elevation of the individual over any authoritative um, like essentially against the the traditional teacher sense of like you know oh here's this poem by Robert Frost and it means the uh, and and then you know that's how more poetry is written because you're writing on these texts or at least that's what Bart says and you know I don't know uh, Bart Bart has been at least that text of Bart's has been one of the most important for me the other ones I'm like okay. Yeah, I often like the style Bart's writes in, but maybe not always the content <laughs> myself. But <laughs> absolutely, no. It's a very, it's a very seductive style. Like I love yeah, the way he and writes. I mean, but it's label. Like... <laughs> I think you're very correct to label it seductive. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't think that's me. I think someone else. I've yeah, I called him. I definitely heard that about his writing or that version, that genre of French writing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's also just because he he's Roland Bart. That's why he's seductive. Yeah. Yeah, he's a, fam- a famous dreamboat. But um, I was going to say, <laughs> the idea of um, something you talk a lot about in the in the es- in the essay and on YouTube is a little bit like um, how correcting someone else's language is is a certain type of fascism. And Absolutely. yeah, and I think so. Like we have the sort of positive idea of you know doing your doing your own criticism and doing poetry criticism, like we were talking about. But there's also that that um, the way in which it can battle, it can be anti-fascist. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, because I, I think the... the I, I made the joke in the video about grammar Nazis, and it's like, you know, I, I've probably spent most of my life as a grammar Nazi until I got into this theory, and I was like, oh, I'm being a fucking dick doing this. It's like, I... Like, you know, I, I don't think it really made the connection. Like, I meet so many people who are like, you know, yeah, if you don't use the Oxford comma, like, you know, whatever. But it's... um. I mean, getting into poetry, you get over so much of that because you're like, okay, it's everyone's individual style. I, I have no policing over that. But then when you become a literal cop about other people's language, it's like, uh, it becomes a fascism. This is where we can kind of talk about maybe, for instance, the role of something like the Poetry Foundation in regulating both, both you know, the style and language of poetry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even just all, all of academia, and I mean, this can apply to the Poetry Foundation as well, but I mean... Oh, yeah. to tie in uh, Jamie Baruch's essay about you know any any publishing house that chooses what get pub- what gets published um, in some way influences like just the 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 overall canon of what is in publication and therefore influences public uh, the public aesthetic. Yeah, and I guess like for instance, Paint Bucket in, in opposition to that generally tries to do fast turnaround times and generally accepts anyone, and I yeah. think that's a. That's a very inclusive and good aesthetic. Like the idea of curating things and the idea of building archives the way, say, poetry, poetry magazine or um, various, like maybe Pen Sound or something, the way they've selectively built archives Absolutely. is something that, you know, like that's kind of why, like, archival work, like, say, like you're mentioning Miami Dickinson, that, that type of ar- archival work where you, 
you meditate just as much on what you're doing as what the texts are doing because there's there's so much of a gap between the archive and maybe what actually happened in the past. Absolutely, and that that again brings us back to Bart, as in like the reader, or in this in this case, like you know the archivist is important. Like you know the person doing the archaeology is as important as whatever they're digging up, um, and you know having a document of that experience is just as you know it can be just as beautiful as whatever artifact you're uncovering and so like you know say let, let's say like the the tweets that you do on the new masses twitter uh, and like to bring to bring uh public attention back to these archives that nobody's probably looked at in forever like you know that is a great work you know what i mean there has been a lot of attention paid to that but <laughs> it's been from like marxist critics from the okay. 60s generation like Alan Wald, or, um, oh God, the some verse of Michael Denning, I want to say. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's more about, about trying to link up that, like, make the links between, like, the 30s and the 60s and the present in a way that can sort of uncover the radical, like, like for instance, you don't necessarily get taught in school mm -hmm. that John Dos Passos was a communist. Like, and there, and all, all these writers, like many of them, had strong leftist sympathies, and I'm trying to, I guess, Absolutely. make that more apparent. I mean, we could we could talk about you know the American school system not talking about any anything about communism, just you know all the anti propaganda against it. Yeah, and I guess so. I guess something else with like that I've been thinking about with with respect to the way, you know, this links up with schools, the way English is attempted, like the attempted standardization of English mm -hmm. and, you know, the way these aesthetics are uh, governed by these institutions. It's, it's like, there's like a book by Raymond Williams, the Marxist critic about TV. And it, it talks a lot in there about how TV, radio, and the newspaper are broadcast mediums where the mm -hmm. information is just broadcast at, you know, quote unquote, the masses. And, you know, I think that the, these standardized languages are a prerequisite for that kind of broadcast. And I think, on the other mm -hmm. hand, having the ability to, like, do as Paint Bucket does and, you know, publish poems in less than 60 minutes or have the ability, like, on Twitter to comment on these shit articles that the New York Times writes, it's, it's a way of, it, it's like a new, like, it's a new way of being able to read and interact with the text, which I think is really important. Yeah, I, I think I mean in the in the most recent episode, you and James were talking about that the the kind of immediacy of paint bucket and just this kind of the 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 kind of quote unquote poetry for the working man type thing about how like you know people only have so much time to read poems that like you still want to have meaningful experiences but are obviously limited by time. Like I mean, I know I've been trying to get through. Uh, Ketchak by Ron Silliman, and that's like a hundred-page poem that took me months and months to get through. And now I'm like, I, can I even finish the rest of this book? Like, do I have the emotional energy yeah, well, to continue well, well, it? Um, let's talk about why you like difficult poetry, because yeah. you you do a, a defense of difficult poetry in the in the YouTube uh, in the YouTube video essay. So what? So oh, absolutely. What, so what I'm difficult poetry. <laughs> I mean, I, I think this point, I'm just so far into it that I, I have to stay with it, that I've gotten into so many fights that I've backed myself into this corner. Uh, no, I, I genuinely enjoy it because it, um, I, I think it allows a, a really interesting space for the reader. I, I first got turned on to difficult poetry when I was introduced to John Ashbery, um, who maybe isn't the most difficult poet in today's standards, but uh, 
it was when I read Houseboat Days for the first time. And uh, I there were so many of those poems I did not understand in the slightest. I was absolutely floored by them. I mean, there were some really long poems of his that totally went over my head. And other ones that were like really short, but just the language of them was so alive and potent that I was just absolutely transfixed by them. Um, and it was very much like, <laughs> Let me you know, uh, pause you uh, real quick. What? Just why a lot of people like, I feel like houseboat days isn't the way a lot of, a lot of people don't get into Ashbury through houseboat, houseboat days. How did, how did you come to ha Ashbury and houseboat days? What was that? A lot of people, what houseboat days? A lot of people I think don't come to Ashbury through houseboat days. How did you, how did you come to him like that? Oh, because I was in a workshop, and it was actually the the teacher assigned houseboat days, and then as soon as we got in the classroom, told us how much she hated Ashbury, and was like trying to get us to hate him. And so I became a uh, avid uh, defender of Ashbury right away because I was like, I'm not letting anyone uh, uh, essentially mold my opinion of him. And I was I already liked him, but I was like, I was like, now I need to defend him. But um, so so I, I interrupted like so. How did you get into uh, difficult poetry from Ashbury? Uh, well, I was very lucky to have a friend who was already big into into kind of already difficult art and poetry. Uh, he introduced me to uh, Ben Lerner, kind of, and uh, kind of all, just and Lynn Hajinian. So, kind of, I have I have him to thank for all that, and a uh, lot of conversations with him about like you know what is the value of difficult poetry, like why. Why, essentially, in kind of the isolation of a school that, you know, where no one is, I mean, or even just, you know, the broader uh, aesthetic community that, like, people aren't as, the attention isn't as big on the language poets as it was maybe in the 70s. And so having come to them, whether through, like, the library or whatever, and just through uh, the conversations and kind of... It, it felt like discovering an underappreciated art that um, at least was definitely, anytime I tried to share it with someone, it was always like, you know, oh, why do you like this shit? And it's like, I, it's, it's hard to uh, articulate why you find something beautiful. And I mean, that's part of criticism, why we do it. But uh, I don't know. I mean, reading Lynn Hoginian's My Life, reading, uh, what was the first book I read by Suleiman? Uh, I probably his uh the the one that's on Eclipse Archive, uh Albany. ABC, I forget, that part of the alphabet. You talk a bit about how, how reading way to I guess resist the language, uh, the language. Yeah, Nazis, I should also probably mention I got big into Ulipo. I was a hardcore Ulipian for a while. <laughs> I think a lot of people go through that phase with them. I'm still big into like, you know, I got big into proceduralism and like, you know, okay, so the, the constraints, you know, uh, shorten the field of what's possible, but therefore heighten the possibilities of what I can do with the language. And that kind of allowed me to make a lot of interesting configurations and kind of broadened my, uh, and I also got big into Gertrude Stein as like one of the predecessors of uh, language. Yeah, and I guess like, like how, how like, how, what is your experience? What is your experience reading those poems? Like, what are you, what are you doing when you read those kind of poets? What was my experience with, with uh, Stein? just generally with the difficult poets? But yeah, partic maybe particularly Stein. Um, 
I mean, again, I mean, I, I'm lucky to have stumbled across Bart to kind of make me feel better about reading difficult poetry. But uh, I, I, I don't know. I always was, uh, I, I was fascinated by Stein. And I think I'm, I, I kind of define in the video, you know, there, there are two different kinds of people, I think, when you read difficult poetry. A person who reads it and doesn't understand it but can appreciate what's happening, and someone who reads it and doesn't understand it and thinks it's calling them stupid or think they're too dumb to understand it. And I was lucky to never feel really attacked or offended when I read difficult work and still when I read difficult work, um, but more so kind of look at it with a curiosity and, you know, uh, an astonishment that allows me to kind of, you know... Uh, appreciate it and allow uh, allow myself to kind of get lost in it. Like I first read Tender Buttons without having any clue what was going on. I just, you know, forced myself to get through it. And, you know, then I'd talk about it with a friend and be like, what the fuck did we just read? And I mean, I, I think it's a lot of that attitude of just, you know, allowing yourself to get through. It. I mean, kind of James's thing of, I, I don't think I've ever talked, really thought about, you know, reading is that James or Jordan? Jordan talks about reading poetry as comic books. Yeah, Jordan talks about that. And something, like the one qualifier I would add to Joel, like reading poetry as comic books is there, there is a moment where you have to learn how to, how to read poetry. And that, that can be a process where yeah. like with you and Stein, you just force your way through a few books until some, one of them starts to make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I, I first actually, I think the first book I read by Stein was her Lectures in America, which is when she kind of came back to America and did a tour of... Uh, lectures and they're five different lectures uh but they read like her poetry or they read at least like um like her later plays and um i i was really transfixed by the syllogistic style of her sentences and also just listened to too many of her recordings because i i think i uh, the recordings of her speaking because it's kind of like you know hearing sylvia plath speak and then you're like okay i already hated this but now it's worse um <laughs> but I I uh, read those lectures and I was really fascinated by them, but I was especially fascinated by Portraits and Repetition. Uh, and that one, she talks about, that. that's kind of her one where she gets into the, the whole idea of, you know, nothing is ever repeated, it's only said again with emph emphasis. And that I, and I mean, it's hard to look at Stein and say nothing gets repeated because almost everything in Stein is repetition. But to, to have this statement by her that's so against what she's doing and then kind of make you reconsider all of all of all the notion of repetition. And then, you know, I went into Hyginian and Silliman with this to think about. I read some Hyginian essays on Stein. Um, and there's also just a lot of contemporary poets very interested in Stein. I mean, Anne Carson is a big one. Uh, but Hedginian also. Yeah, Ken, uh, Jordan said Kenneth Koch was a big Stein fan, which kind of surprised me. Really, I don't. I don't know much about Kenneth Koch. Kenneth Koch. Yeah, he's just. Uh, he's kind of. You could say he's the class clown of the New York school. <laughs> that's probably a little unfair to him, but <laughs> that's one way to present him. But um, I do want to say, I did want to bring up a point in your in your video essay where you talk about uh, Charles Bernstein line where he said, uh, right. Uh, read globally, at, uh, write locally. Yeah, and I guess you, you had you had a criticism of that line, and I think and I think you're someone who appreciates language poetry, but also has some pretty strong criticisms of it. Oh, absolutely, and and I think uh, I quote the Bernstein line out of context. He's definitely coming from the right place when he says that, but uh, in the context of my essay, it definitely makes it much more harsh. Uh, but no, uh, and I, I 
I do think that that harshness is fair. Okay, okay. I appreciate that then. But uh, my, my criticism of it was how can you uh, write locally if your language has been systematically denied you your entire life and, you know, reclaiming it isn't easy because of institutionalized racism, etc. And this is specifically with regard to Ave and just other languages that are systematically denied recognition. Um, and I mean... The, the kind of, I should kind of give a context, uh, contextualization to the entire reason I wanted to do all of this, because it's very petty. Oh, absolutely. Do it. But uh, the, uh, the kind of, I, I got, okay, so I was taking a class last semester. It was a colloquium one class. I, you have to take it as a literature major. And, you know, I didn't want to be there, whatever. Uh, I had a teacher who was a post-colonialist in which is very strange because she loved, she was born in India, raised in Great Britain, and loved British poetry, but was also a post-colonialist and loved post-colonialism. And these two kind of poles of her aesthetic really seemed to conflict with one another, but in a way that I don't think she was aware of. And she had, uh, she loved... I mean, it's not that she wasn't aware of. She has criticisms of Imperium and whatnot, but I think she has a lot of internalized empire in the sense that she loves writers. Like, uh, I cite James Joyce as one of the biggest ones she really likes as a writer, or like Salman Rushdie, or um, I'm trying to think of someone more radical. I can't really think of one. But like, James Joyce is a good one who like writes radically in his own language, even though it's not Irish, in English, and in order to kind of uh, stake a claim for himself in the language and forge a national identity because of that and kind of, you know, reclaim self as kind of an act against empire, even though with this theory, you know, Joyce is writing in English, it doesn't subvert uh, England, it kind of, because then England reclaims Joyce, etc. And so, you know, one of the writers I I threw back at her was uh, uh, what's his name? He wrote uh, "Decolonizing the Mind." Ingo- uh, yeah, Ngugi Wationgo. He um, cause he wrote, but then apparently she shot back at me. She was like, "Well, actually, he didn't write in his native language. He wrote in Swahili, which is essentially a congl- conglomeration of language." And I was like, "Fuck, I didn't know that." Um, but. Uh, she wouldn't allow her students to use contractions. She said, uh, no contractions here. This is English class. Uh, we write properly. And when she said that, I was like, I was like, okay. I was like, really? Are we being real right now? I was like, we're, we're reading Joyce, et cetera. We're reading people who like actively subvert language. And I'm like, you're telling us we can't use contractions and use like, you know, normal speech, et cetera, in our writing. And I mean, uh, for a person like me who essentially speaks the same way that is uh, accepted in academia, it doesn't matter as much. But like for someone in the class who spoke Ave or any other varying di- like language, I-, I was upset for them, even though no one else seemed to have this like criticism of her. And I was like, I, I was just like enraged. I- and I went and I talked to the, um, my, uh, essentially my, uh, 
boss now at the learning center because like you know she's who i learned a lot of this theory from because it's how to uh, you know appropriately talk about someone else's paper without you know uh essentially colonizing their work um and you know essentially not being a racist tutor and you know i talked about it and uh she was just like yeah i don't know what to say we get this complaint a lot but uh yeah, that that's how that's how the world is, kind of. And I was like, well, fuck. So I was like, I need to do more reading and write something because I'm angry. For I I think something kind of crazy is that. Well, first off, I had no idea about you know most of tr most of the translation that happens is government funded, um, which I imagine you know is done with nefarious purposes or intentions. But uh, also, I would offer in like contrast to that the majority the the biggest um i think allocation of resources for foreign language learning in america is from the de the, the defense service institute or whatever that thing is called it's literally training soldiers to learn languages to go abroad and so like i i imagine it's those people doing the translation and so it's literally a branch of the military like one of the only places you can go in the u.s to study a language uh with like under a grant would be from the dsi i think it's a dsi is what they're called yeah well a lot of a lot of it is done through um foreign government and so and or south korea like south korea has made a big push like a lot of it is done through foreign governments trying to generate soft power let's say that's really interesting, especially interesting because it means that they're trying to legitimize themselves in, say, English through translation, if that's what you mean. Some, some of it is certainly that. I think for a country like South Korea that does a lot of it, that could be the case. For France, I think France just has, you know, they're just very proud of their French culture for some reason, so they love to do it. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> But I, I do think generally there is a lot of the funding, a lot of the funding does come from states. And I think that like you're not like, for instance, Carl translates like a lot of like uh, radical literature from South, South and Central America. And, you know, you very rarely Fuck see yeah. that stuff. Yeah, you very, very rarely see that stuff in English. And there's there's, of course, a reason for that. It's because of how translation is done. And I think that oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's also who they want published. I mean, I'm right now, I, I was just looking through like, you know, what leftist German poets haven't been published in English, and I found Ernst Toller. And so I'm working through him right now. And it's like, you know, the the last person who apparently translated Ernst Toller is like this conservative uh cuck lord. So so who who is Ernst Toller? Uh, from the little I know about him, from reading his Wikipedia page, he was a leftist revolutionary in Germany before, like, in between World War One and World War Two. In the year 1919, he was part of a revolution in Bavaria. He established with his colleagues the uh, Bavarian Soviet Republic, which was only uh, functioning for a very short period, which he was president of for a short time, like six days, I think. And then he was jailed, and while he was in jail, he wrote these five, these uh, this set of poems, uh, the poems of the imprisoned or imprisonment. Um, and yeah, he did other stuff. He did a lot of other activism, but like that's what he kind of went down for. 
uh, and then later when the Nazis America, uh, and while he was in America, his family was sent to concentration camps, and he eventually uh, committed suicide over here. Yeah, and I think that's like the kind of work that traditionally isn't isn't translated into English for you know a lot of obvious reasons, and yeah. you know I think one of the goals ultimately of something like this podcast or you know Carl say Carl's work is to try and make can make those connections because if you read about say the stuff he translates you know they they make they those movements are connected with various surrealist movements and and throughout South America and the situationists and there really is a a global left it's just very difficult to to read here in the United States and that's one of the reasons it's wonderful having, you know, uh, like the the groups accumulating online right now. Because like I never would have heard of those groups had I not heard you and Carl talk about them. And like I, I for one, like am just now discovering like all of these movements across you know South and Latin America that like I was previously totally unaware of. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, Carl, Carl and I are going to talk about this, but like I, the only reason I was ever aware of them was because um, of Roberto Bolaño's work, and you know. Yeah, I, I think that's a certain context to learn about them, and I think Carl and I are going to discuss exactly what that means. But um, that'll be awesome. Yeah, hope, hopefully. Um, I'm a little <laughs> nervous to talk about it with him because he's he's quite knowledgeable about it. But <laughs> but I think to get back to the reading globally, writing locally thing is it's it's really it's 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 really a, a hard demand, and I think like there's a lot of work that has to be done before something like that could even be imagined. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's part of the, part of the problem that comes with um, uh, where the essay ends, which is, you know, Ver- uh, Vershana Shanti Young is one of the scholars who I most heavily drew on from this essay. His, uh, his essay, Should Writers Use Their Own English, is one of the most influential works for me. And uh, he essentially talks about he puts forth forth this theory of code meshing in contrast to code switching, which like, you know, we all code switch depending on who we're talking about, but especially uh, people, minorities code switch around depending, you know, whether they need to fit in, whether they don't want to be judged or uh, criticized or, you know, uh, essentially hated (laughs) um, for lack of a gentler term. And uh, he he proposes code meshing as a way to allow all of all of an individual's multiple linguistic identities to kind of flow together and thrive and kind of you know uh, escape that um, the the kind of hegemony of white language supremacy. And I would also say um, Asao B Inue has a great his uh, his video I think was delivered to the MLA or the 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 CCCC whatever that means. Um, the like conference or centers of teaching English or something talk, which is uh, what do we do about white language supremacy or how do we language so we stop killing each other or something like that, which is a great title. Um, his talk is awesome because he, he in the video, in the address, addresses all of the white teachers in the room and like tells them like, you know, this isn't about you. You are the problem. I'm now going to talk to all of the teachers of color. And it's 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 pretty sick because he's like, you need to acknowledge like you know you're complicit you're uh, complete uh, no yeah you're being complicit, um, and complacent and he's like you know you're not you're choosing not to act is selfish and it's getting people killed, 
And like, you know, this is why we need to start changing the way we're teaching. We need to, because it, the argument I get into with people is, you know, I'll say like, you know, a, a student should be able to write how they write, you know, and, you know, not fear judgment for it. Why are you telling them it's wrong? And then the person I'm talking to will go, well, how are they going to get a job if they're writing like that? And it's like, you know, well, obviously someone here is at fault for that. And it's the, it's the person who taught the person who taught the person giving the job or whatever. And like, you know, it just goes so far back the, the, the way where the, the entrenchment in white language supremacy goes really far back and we're very ingrained in it. And, you know, uh, I once knew a teacher who told me that if he was reading your cover letter and you had, once he came across a typo, he would delete it. He would uh, put it in his trash bin and you would not get the job. And it's like, what the fuck? Is this really how we're like treating each other? Yeah, and I, I mean, so I mean, spoiler alert: there, there are no jobs just generally now. So, I mean, how, how relevant? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a very good point. No, but I, I do want to ask, like, because you're talking about pedagogy like this, like, how does how does that inform you know your YouTube videos? Um, I mean, uh, me being very open about these policies means I'll never get a job in academia, because uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I just try to be very open and honest. And uh, I, I guess, I, what do you what do you mean? How does the the pedagogy inform my YouTube practice? The yeah, I guess I mean, you know how how does say you know being so against like grammar Nazis or being <laughs> <laughs> being being against grammar Nazis? Like, how does that how does that like manifest itself? Do you think in the kind of videos you make? I mean, it's, you know, again, it's tough as a, as a person who, again, sp speaks quote unquote properly. Like I unfortunately speak, you and I speak the language that is already, you know, Imperium. And so it's like, it's, it's fighting the system from the inside in a way that I don't like because it's gross, but also it's like, you know, I have to be authentic to myself because otherwise it's just untrue. And so... I mean, uh, again, taking the stance against like the only okay Nazi you're allowed to be nowadays, and like to say you're again—I don't know—SJWs haven't come around to this yet because it's too much theory. But like, uh, I mean, the 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 fascism inherent in critiquing and policing other people's language, I would hope, would be more uh, apparent to the left, and I think we're getting there. But I think it's a lot of you know. Uh, a lot of the youth that hasn't kind of grappled with these ideas yet. And I mean, not even the youth, but I'd also say like um, a lot of uh, boomers in academia who have tenure jobs who don't know any of this shit yet. Like I, I emailed a professor telling him like, you know, I'd love to talk about this paper with him and, you know, explain some of the basic premises. And he was like, you know, you're treading on theory ground that, you know, I've never seen before. And I was like, how i'm like you're a literature teacher yeah and i mean that goes like it seems like a lot of poets are quite unaware of theory just generally and it's it's quite frustrating you i mean you hate to see it frankly <laughs> you, you hate to see it folks and i guess like for you i mean being so invested in it like because I, I i'm not necessarily someone who's super invested in it um i only have an undergrad degree yeah, so like I can generally 
pretend I know it, but I'm not very <laughs> invested in it. But for someone who's like, no, yeah, and and I, no, theory is scary. Theory is a lot of work. You know, I get scared of you know Marxists or Maoists who know more shit than me. I'm like, you know, fuck. I read, you know. Uh, I listened to fucking Friedrich Engels' Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific on audiobook, man. I'm like, what do you want? Yeah, and I mean, I mean, that's the other side of the coin, too, is, like, it's it's how to make this stuff, I guess, um, more friendly and less scary. Because Absolutely. I, I do think there is something, you know, there's a Regeneration magazine article about reading groups and sort of, how how like it's, it's i think grappling with the question of how to how to spread this knowledge and it's it's quite tough if it's if you're just trying to say read the book because it's not <laughs> it's not the best option imo no yeah absolutely i mean I, I think accessibility is one of the one of the key things even if i'm against not cuz not necessarily against but even if i'm against the aesthetics of accessibility in poetry to a certain degree by liking difficulty doesn't mean that I'm against accessibility in theory uh, or like of theory. Like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, to, to interrupt real quick, I think the article made a point too. Like it's not like putting, putting a accessibility with disability is maybe not the right way of going ab about it. And I think that's my fault because I was trying to frame, I, I think I framed it that way, but I think it's more grappling with the idea of like, how do you, how do you present these difficult ideas and how do we, I guess, like share them with each other in a way that, that, you know, people will actually want to engage with. I mean, I think that's why I, I, I think that's why I came to YouTube because I, I, I enjoy being enthusiastic about poetry. You know, I, I, I like the, I, I've been told I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I get very excited when I talk about this stuff. And so I guess, you know, I, I hope I can sell it to people who otherwise wouldn't, but even though I don't, necessarily want to sell it you know what i mean like just make it seem fun like you know i don't think people think about difficult poetry and think it's fun but you know this stuff has genuinely brought me like a lot of joy and a lot of um valuable insider experience and i, I think you know making it showing that you can have you know a valuable experience with it is um is meaningful to, to someone who might otherwise not engage with the material. Right. Well, and I think um, you mentioned Ulipo earlier, and I think these, these things mm -hmm. can be made quite fun. And I, I've seen James do a couple little experiments, like uh, for paint, James do a couple experiments for paint bucket, like, oh, just write a poem and include the phrase obviously, obviously in it. And I think those kind of things can <laughs> make even make participating in poetry fun. And I do think there's a way these things can be made fun and enjoyable to participate in. Yeah, I've used... Ulipo has been a good way for me to... It's like a good gateway drug to difficulty. Because, like, you know, you kind of get a language game going and you're like, all right, we're all going to make these collective poems. And then you're like, okay, and now we're going to read, you know, some uh, Jacques Jouet uh, poem that he wrote on a subway. And, you know, it goes like this. And, like, here are the rules. And now let's go write one. And it's like, you know, it, it kind of brings poetry into the real world in a way. You know, I, I mean, there's that line in uh, Ketchak, which is, you know, no, what is it? There's no content here, only only dailiness, which I really like. You know, the idea of the, the, the kind of language push to bring the quotidian into the poem. Yeah, and that that's goes, a, that goes off what we're talking about, but yeah. No, and I mean, that like that goes, that's a big mission of a lot of leftist movements in addition to 
Ulipo, like um, the situationists like that. Mm-hmm. And I think language poetry sometimes will try and do that. But mm-hmm. I don't know, try like, and, you know, Jordan Davis, I think, is interested in talking about this as well, like bringing everyday references into poetry in a way that maybe, you know, you could bring everyday references into a poem in a manner that's very New York school. But because they're everyday references, maybe it's maybe people will recognize and like that and find it fun. Yeah, definitely. The uh, the yeah, reference is interesting. I, I did you guys you guys may have talked about reference at a different point, but the. The idea, I always find it interesting when I, when I write a poem and, you know, I'll, I'll share it with my family and they'll find the most, you know, mundane parts of it the most interesting because it's what they're able to recognize. Whereas like everyone else I've shown the poem to didn't pay any attention to those bits. I, I find that interesting. That's a totally different point. Well, it is very interesting. Like, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, but it's very interesting to see what parts of poems people also, pay we attention could, to. we could interrogate reference like the language poets. That's totally true, too. But, I mean, <laughs> it is really interesting to see what parts of poems people pay attention to. No, totally. Um, I think the, uh, uh, the, just that one, the one poem on Peyton Bucket that ends, you know, the landlords must die or we must kill the landlords <laughs> that might not narrow it down very much no but you know what i mean like that I do that's, know what the you one, mean. <laughs> that's the that's like the line that everyone has remembered from that poem and it's like you know that poem is a beautiful poem but it's like that's that is the line that everyone knows now and it's kind of or you know um uh, let's let's quote Ilya kaminsky <laughs> Like, how, how do lines get remembered? Is it because we're memeing them? Yeah, well, I mean, what's very interesting with Ilya, and I've joked about this before, maybe on this podcast, but, like, he he name searches himself, and every time someone tweets that fucking oh, fuck. line... does uh, he really? Yeah, every time he fucking tweets... Anytime anyone That's tweets that... That's followed me. <laughs> at least he hasn't <laughs> blocked you, but... Um, hey, I met him in person, and he was really sweet, but then I started tweeting shit about him, like, the next week. Oh, uh, I mean, who's among us hasn't done that? <laughs> <laughs> but like with like with Ilya Kaminsky, I think this kind of proves a point. It's like he he wrote one very memeable line, the one about at the trial, God will ask. I can't even remember the real line because we've made so many fucking jokes about it. But <laughs> but he, yeah, he God fucking... God will ask why did you allow this, and the voice the answer will be an echo or whatever. Yeah, honestly, but um, like he 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 retweets that line every time, and it's just like oh my god, it's just like wow, what like. I'm just imagining him writing it and thinking, hell yeah, this is such a good line. Every time every time someone tweets this, I'm going to fucking RT it. Dude, like, I, I really wait, can't wait for the day when he uh, quote tweets himself. You know how he like quote tweets different authors, lines from their poetry? Now he just like quotes his own work. Oh, he, may, he probably already has. I, everyone's just blocked. He's getting nutty with it. I mean, that's that's one way of looking at it. He is a wife guy. <laughs> oh my god he is yeah that's that's canon now i have the screenshots <laughs> yeah but i guess like to, to i'm just remembering we there was a point to joking about Ilya. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah it was memorable lines yeah yeah what were you gonna say about memorable lines because like uh oh god i have no idea <laughs> i don't know i got off on a tangent we were talking about read globally write locally <laughs> Yeah, but I think you were going to say something about poetry and memeable lines, but I'm struggling to remember why. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I write a poem and it's just like, all right, let's just see if I can make every single line a memeable line. Fuck yes. 
but I don't know if that's good practice, but it's certainly something I've done. I mean, I don't know. You guys, you guys, you guys have talked about irony versus sincerity on here, and actually, one of the things you brought up, which is a, uh, which I had never noticed, which is the that people have commented that Felix from Chapo is his most sincere when he's most ironic. He and you know he himself might have been the one who said that. I'm. It's it's oh, quite possible. Yeah, it's possible. He's getting self aware. Someone needs to keep an eye on him. It's all those Twitch streams. <laughs> no, but you you brought that up, and I was like, you know, that's really fucking true. And I sh I should be fair because that that was a conversation with Trent, and Trent and I talk a lot in DMs, and that's something we've really been thinking a lot about is how both irony and the sincerity of alt lit like really really mirror each other in some interesting ways, and and by interesting I mean very troubling ways. <laughs> And oh so, no, absolutely. It's gotten me concerned when I'm writing my own shit lately because I'm like, you know, how much of myself am I taking seriously at this point? And like when I'm taking myself seriously, will it be misconstrued as this ironic sincerity? Yeah, it's it's really a minefield out there for that kind of stuff and like I think that's kind of why like the irony position is so is so popular. Like I this is something I've noticed. Like I can do tweets where I just like say what I believe. <laughs> And no one, and like it'll be like you know three people like it, which is fine. I'm, I'm, I'm not like trying to complain about people liking my stuff on Twitter.com. It's you just like, more in, likes. It's yeah, no, it's fine. I need, we all do. No, but I'm just saying. <laughs> well, we should redistribute the likes. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Redistribute the likes from the irony posters to the sincere posters. No, but mm. um, <laughs> if I make the same point and just wrap it in an irony package, like people just like like it a lot more and i think that's like a really weird thing that we should probably think about i i absolutely agree i mean the i, I think a lot of it has come down to uh, so much of my humor has devolved into just degenerate irony and i think it's you know the state of the universe of mercury and retrograde i mean that dang is mercury and retrograde again i don't know it who knows <laughs> who knows but like but like um with the irony stuff it's i guess it's weird to see like the left kind of embracing that because like we have like i think in a lot of ways we have to embrace it on twitter because of terms of service reasons but like i feel like there are other things we could say that are that <laughs> yeah. are just as popular bring back david the rip he he's just too opinionated opinionated about instagram poetry <laughs> but yeah i just like i don't know i feel like we're ripe for a new aesthetic, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I'm interested to see what that'll be. Because uh, I do think the the irony sincerity has brought about a lot of really powerful stuff. Um, and uh, uh, specifically what's like, you know, accumulating around paint bucket and just left left poetry at the moment. Just, you know, the really kind of visceral um, shit needs to happen aesthetic. It, not even an aesthetic, but like push. I'm, I'm kind of like you know the kind of. Oh no, go on. No, what were you gonna say? Well, I was just gonna say like, you know, you see, you see people like I just talked to. Um, oh gosh, his what's his new Twitter at? Formerly known as um, Ohio City Beef. Um, about how? Oh, Bra uh, wait, he just went back to. He changed it back to something. Yeah, I think he's Grieve Grieveland now. Grieve underscore land. Grieveland, yeah. yeah, Grieve underscore. Yeah, but grief boy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I talked to him, and he, you know, we were talking about, I guess, how how in one of his poems he kind of 
adopts the aesthetic of some of the poets we criticize, but he ultimately does it to subvert it in the last line. And it just seems like, and he, and he's sort of saying, you know, I don't, I don't really have yes. an aesthetic yet. And I just feel like a lot of us right now are kind of in a space where it's like, what, what aesthetic do we actually want? Oh, totally. I don't know. Do you feel that way? I guess with um, your, your, your work. Yeah, I mean, I find I find me to be in an interesting position because not a lot of my work is online or circulating at all. I've got that one in uh, Paint Bucket right now. That's probably the only poetry of mine most people have seen at the moment. Um, I, I sent some to someone who was like, hey, like that poem, let me see some other stuff. And I was like, sure, dude. But uh, the uh, it's weird because now I'm like, you know, shit, people like that. Most of my other stuff isn't like that, but I let myself do it, and I'm, like, happy I did because, you know, most of my stuff won't. Um, that one was very political, and I had been very... All of my poetry has uh, political tinges to it, but the the kind of getting into the what has been going up on paper, it has made me feel more confident to articulate my kind of frustration and rage at the moment. And I, and I feel like for a lot of people, Paint Bucket has been a moment where it's been like a permission, oh my God, permission granting moment yeah. where, <laughs> yeah. where people feel like, oh my God, yeah, I can just say like off with their heads. Yeah, no, totally. And, and again, it has that like, you know, off with their heads, okay, you know, Alice in Wonderland, but also like bring back the guillotine. Yeah, and I mean... Like, this goes back to the very beginning of this conversation, which is a lot of these institutions... Hey, look at... Yeah. <laughs> a lot of these institutions are, you know, regulating the aesthetic, regulating what you're allowed to say in public. Yeah, and, you know, I think one of the things, you know, you're doing it on YouTube and, you know, I'm trying to do it this podcast and uh, Paint Bucket's out there trying to do it, is trying to give people spa a space where maybe something a, a different kind of aesthetic can emerge, a different kind of ideology can can flourish absolutely and i think it's happening i mean even if we don't know what it'll look like it's definitely unfolding yeah and that is like really interesting and exciting to watch i think for me anyways it's been really fun yeah no me too i mean it, it's weird because it, it felt like you know i've been looking for a long time for you know people like like the ones who have gathered around pain pocket to like you know, interested in, or like, you know, leftist in policy, in politics, you know, uh, radical in, you know, poetic shit, or just, you know, care about poetry to an extent of like, you know, it matters. And it feels like, you know, I just randomly stumbled across the, the Twitters of all these people. And I'm like, you know, shit, these people are doing it. Fuck yeah. Yeah, it really has felt very, very random, but <laughs> I feel very lucky to have run into it. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Yeah, is there, so is there anything else you'd like to talk about? I don't know. We went all over the place. So if, the, if, whatever, if you didn't get anything out of my essay, there's still that video. <laughs> so yeah, let's sorry. just remind everyone. Go, what's, your, what's your YouTube channel for everyone? Uh, I believe it's youtube.com slash raggedymat because I made the channel when I was like 11. Uh, but you can also uh, type in like, you know, anti-racist pedagogy and it's probably the first thing that comes up. Yeah, it's it's probably not going to be a ton of results for that on YouTube.com. I'm actually going to search now. Yeah, let's I'm let's do a let's do a quick test. What what comes up? Oh my god, it is the first video. Oh hell yeah! Wait, did you did you search incog? Did you Fuck search yeah. incognito? No, I didn't. Well, it could be it could be your algorithm. 
Well, I just searched on YouTube. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> it's probably one of the. It's probably <laughs> the first. <laughs> Unless you're some kind of sicko listening to this, where you hate listen to fucking Jordan Peterson every day, it should probably be your first result. Hell yeah, you got him. He just got them all. Yeah, so it's it's been fun talking, but um, is there like, I guess, oh yeah, is there anything else you wanted to, to like mention that you do? Just like um, do you want people to maybe look up the other YouTube channel you did or no? Uh, yeah, the other YouTube channel is called Polyglot Progress. It's uh, uh, my ex-girlfriend and I on there. We kind of just did it. We wanted to make an educational resource, kind of a place where people could gather and kind of just, you know, uh, motivate each other to learn languages because when we were both in high school, there wasn't really anything. And uh, kind of since we did that, there's been a whole uh, language scene of YouTubers that's kind of arisen. So, you know, it's... Not not anything totally crazy, but it's it's still cool. There's some fun videos on there. No, that she's still really doing cool. it. What what languages do you speak, real quick? Uh, well, I okay, that's a thing. Is like you know yeah, what qualifies like as speaking a, a language? <laughs> I opened a box. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely a box because I have a lot of opinions about that. Uh, but you know, uh, I I like to list them in terms of proficiency, and like decreasing proficiency. So you know, there's like. English, which I've been speaking forever. German was when I picked that up or, or started learning it, actually. Uh, and then, you know, I speak some terrible French if I need to. I love Norwegian, but, you know, I suck. Uh, and then I've studied a ton of other shit. I spent a year doing Spanish and Italian, but, like, you know, I probably couldn't speak either of those for my life. Uh, shit, I was studying Cherokee for a bit with my friend, but I can't say anything, so I can't count that. That'd be a lie. Uh, and that's probably it. Yeah, that's really cool. I need to. I've been meaning to learn Spanish. Oh shit! I did Esperanto. I unfortunately learned Esperanto for oh a while. Oh my god! Can you can you speak? <laughs> can you speak? <laughs> <laughs> do you, what do you want me to say? I don't know. Look, go uh, support Paint Bucket on Patreon. Except probably the only word you need to. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> yeah, probably know. was gonna say probably the only word that <laughs> would be support. Uh, <laughs> support us, uh, Paint Bucket, or sur, uh, Patreon or. Patreonon. Yeah. <laughs> That's totally I mean, wrong. Someone definitely will be an Esperantist listening to this, I'm sure. I don't know. I feel like a lot of our a lot of the listeners to this podcast are <laughs> probably the anti Esperanto types, but who knows? Well good. <laughs> uh. Oh god. I swore I'd never speak Esperanto again. <laughs> that's a, that's like a great start to a novel. I swear I'd never speak Esperanto again. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna write that poem as soon as we get off here. <laughs> well, you gotta do that. It'll be funny. <laughs> it'll it'll end saying uh, we we lived happily during the war, but in Esperanto. Oh yeah, that's this is a good poem already. I'm excited. Look forward to this on Paint Bucket. Sorry, James, but I'll I'll submit it soon. Yeah, James actually just took one in Spanish, I think. Oh fuck yeah! Yeah, luckily Carl's there to help us understand Spanish. Thank God! Thank God for Carl. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, but um, I guess what's your what's your Twitter at? Uh, it's Matildork M A T H I L D O R K, and uh, I I do shitty irony. Yeah, we all do. We we did irony during the war. <laughs> we did irony. Yeah, it was good irony. Well, um, we did irony during the war. Yeah, I think I think I was, I, we actually fucking are. Oh shit. Oh shit! Oh, we've we've become self-aware. 
Yeah. Shit. Fuck. Are we the ones who are owned here? <laughs> I think so. I'll just edit this part out. It's fine. No one will know. <laughs>